indeed, O oh God, we are a people who understand that what has happened to us so often in the past is there's been more of us and less of thee. And, and having leaned on the arm of the flesh and having had confidence in our own street smarts and savvy, we've gotten ourselves into mess after mess after mess. And so we have come to the place having having learned or at least tasted some lessons of that heaven has dished out that we pray and sing from hearts that genuinely desire more of thee and for heaven's sakes for Jesus sake less of me Our Father, we gather week after week longing for that to be so. And we pray that as we gather for this hour, your Spirit might work in us a greater conformity to Christ and a greater hatred of our own carnality. Our Father, the part that we bring to this whole transaction is confession, is yieldedness, is surrender, is humility. And we long now, O oh God, for it to be so. Might there be more and more and more of thee. Our Father, as we gather around your word and table this morning, we invite you to be present among us. We all come knowing that we are uh, in the flesh, but what we are about to do cannot be accomplished that way. We long for the Spirit of God to join our hearts to yours. Forgive what is said in error today, but take what is said correctly and use it to the ongoing advancement of Christ's likeness in every soul. As we, as we gather around the table and see elements that are common to our everyday usage, might they remind us of something that is anything but common and all divine. Oh God, we've walked in here a certain person and we want to walk out here, out of here, a different person. Little by little, being made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, accept our gifts now. This is our, our time of all the times of a worship service. It's our time to be able to express gratefully, gladly, willingly, joyfully that you are the provider and that we are the recipients of more kindness than we can list. And so in faith do we give. Father, we trust you with our financial future far more than we trust that portfolio and Wall Street and all of its machinations. We come to lay our hearts at your feet. Accept them, O oh God. They are tokens of love for thee. We make our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. About an irresistible testimony. That's what we're all about for these next few weeks. My uh, text this morning consists of one verse, and I'd uh, like for you to, I'm in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, 
And I'd like to read simply one verse. John chapter 1 at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Years ago, when the church first started, way back on Murray Road, some of you will remember way back then, but back on Murray Road, uh, I used to tell a story uh, about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it's a story that I want to repeat because I hope it will get us off on the right foot as we seek to build a testimony that's irresistible. Um, it, apparently, I mean, as the story goes, the uh, president and a group of his companions were traveling by horseback when they came upon a river that had been swollen by some recent downpours and uh, so much so that the bridge had been washed out. There was no bridge to, to, to cross the river. And so each of them had to cross on horseback, unaided by the uh, uh, bridge, and it was a pretty dangerous crossing. There were very rapid currents, and, and in reality, each of them risked their life as they crossed this river uh, with the possibility of them being swept away by those currents. And uh, there was a man who was not with uh, Jefferson and his party who stood on the one side of the uh, river and watched as several of uh, President Jefferson's companions jumped into the water on the horseback and made it successfully to the other side. And about that time, this man walks up to President Jefferson and says, um, Would you carry me? Can I ride along with you across this river? And um, he said, Well, sure. And uh, didn't hesitate a moment. And the guy hopped on his horse, and pretty soon they launched into the river and, and made it successfully to the other side. And um, as the man was sliding off the back of the horse and on, uh, landing on dry ground, the other members of Jefferson's party came up to him and said, Why was it the president that you asked this favor of? And the man assured them that he had no idea that it was the president. And he said, the only thing I can tell you is when I, when I looked at the rest of you, some of your faces, on some of your faces was written no. And on some of your faces was written yes. He just happened to have a yes face. Now, I wonder what that man saw that he described as a yes face. What did he see? I remember back on Murray Road, uh, we, we talked about it a lot. I, I, I know one person remembers it. I bet you Donna Pierce remembers. We used to talk about having a yes face. And, uh, you know, the issues back then were, um, are we going to let people eat pizza in the sanctuary? And we would say, we want to have a yes face. Or, are we going to um, let the landlord use our copy machine? And we wanted to have a yes face. So we were, we were saying yes as often as we could. The issues today are different. There's been almost oh, ten and a half years have, have transpired. And, and the issues in front of us today are different. And the issue that is presently before us has to do with the issue of reaching lost men and women. And I want to begin like this. Do you really want to reach them? Really? Now, Jimmy, that's a, that's, a, that's a very odd question. Why, why, of course. I mean, who wouldn't? Of course we want to reach them. Really? 
well, if that's true, and I, and I sure hope it is about us, what I'm suggesting is that the first component part of an irresistible testimony has to do with a yes face. Something that people can spot even in your countenance. Unfortunately, um, that's not always true. That is, a yes face is not, only, not always discernible in the faces of church-going folk, which, um, which, which might come as somewhat of a surprise to you. Let me try to explain what I'm alluding to. There, there is, there's an attitude that uh, exists in the Christian church, uh, I'm afraid, on the part of some of God's people, uh, that almost shows up in their faces. It's an attitude developed over years that uh, reduces Christianity to a set of rules and regulations and where um, uh, their God seems to be awfully small and uh, they have become awfully rigid and, and performance is, is, uh, is all important. And all of that kind of adds up to, uh, uh, to make a countenance that instead of saying yes, so often seems to say no. Now, let me tell you three stories, and, and uh, I think you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. I was in a, a, a local retail establishment uh, this week and had bought a couple of things and, and uh, went up to the checkout line, and the guy that checked me out um, was, a, was a, it seemed to be a happy little guy. He uh, was um, a teenager, and he checked out my items, and um, interestingly enough, he had a mohawk. Now, this was not just any mohawk. This mohawk was blue. Royal blue. Now, um, what do you think? What do you think he would see if he chose to worship with us? I was in a, uh, with my wife, a local restaurant, a kind of a fast food place. We remain nameless. We don't want a lawsuit. Um, but um, walked up to order my fast food, or the girl to take my order, and um, she had a ring in her lip. And she had another ring, or whatever they're called, in her tongue. And a saucy little attitude. And I uh, asked a question about a pickle. <laughs> and I mean, she... <clears throat> what do you think she would find if she worshipped here? One more story. I was on the Stairmaster. Um, I'm going to write a book one of these days called Life as Viewed from the Stairmaster. But I was on the... There's five Stairmasters, and I was on the end one, and there was two guys uh, standing or next to me on the Stairmaster. There's three of us. And the other two happened to be... Sorry, Mike. Pilots. And they were both recently divorced. Um, and they were talking in a way that 
they apparently didn't mind that I listened in to what they had to say because uh, <laughs> it certainly wasn't hard to hear. And they were talking primarily, they were talking primarily about their new living arrangements. That is, after their, their, their divorces apparently were recent, and they had both had to go get apartments. And so they were talking about this apartment and what they'd faced and this, how much they were paying and, and what they had and where they were living and, you know, da 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 And, you know, they were talking about their new apartments as a, as a result of their divorces. And, um, uh, and finally, the conversation um, <laughs> kind of went south um, because one of them looked at the other. In fact, it was the one down here, the third one. I mean, there was one in between me and him. And, but I could hear him all the way over here. He was talking about this weekend. His girlfriend was coming down from Chicago. <laughs> yes, sir. His girlfriend was coming down from Chicago. And they were looking at whoa, They were looking to have one big old time. Now, um, what do you think they would say? when they walked in here if they chose to worship with us. Gang, um, where does a pro-choice liberal Democrat who struggles with homosexual tendencies go to church? How would they feel about worshiping with us? Those of us who have become the moral exterminators of the world. So, um, I want to ask you again. And I sure hope the answer is yes. Do you really want to reach lost men and women? Because that's who they are. Are you ready to spend money to reach them? Are you ready to lose your seat that you've been sitting in for ten years now? Are you ready to sit next to someone with a blue mohawk? Um, do you understand that if we do, by God's grace, succeed in reaching them that there may be some expectations that you might have of the ministerial staff that may go unmet? You know, gang, we're not talking about bank presidents with a lovely wife and three finely groomed children. Oh, there may be a bank president or so who... Uh, who is, I'm not saying that bank presidents don't need the Lord. I'm just saying th th those won't be hard to welcome, would they? But I'm talking about lost men and women, and I'm telling you, the three stories that I told you more closely typify them than the bank president and his three finely groomed children. Do you really want to reach them? I told this story years ago, and um, it's a good thing the junior hires are not here. <laughs> the junior hires are on the way back from Fall Creek Falls, so there's a couple of things in here that this story is not, I'm not sure it should be told, but um, it's a story that Philip Yancey tells about a friend of his who had a prostitute who came to visit his friend um, for counsel. Actually, she was looking for money. She was, uh, she was in a wretched condition, sick, homeless, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. 
And through all of her sobs and tears, she told Yancey's friend that she um, had been renting out her two-year-old because she could make more money in an hour renting out her two-year-old than she could in a whole night's work herself. And she needed the money for her drug habit. And Yancey's buddy was saying, you know, I was in absolute trauma because I didn't know what to say. And now I was in a position that I was going to have to report her to the authorities because by law, I have to report child abuse. And he said, I, I didn't know what to say to this woman. And, and he finally looked at her and he said, have you ever thought about going to a church for help? And he said, I will never forget the, the look of shock and pure naivete as she responded to my question by saying, Church? Why would I go to church? I already feel terrible about myself and that would just make me feel worse. What do you think she saw? I found this story that I, I, I think is almost downright humorous, but <laughs> some of you who are more technical probably won't think it's humorous. This guy actually, this, his name is Dr. Edward O. Wilson, who is a Harvard biologist, um, performed a rather bizarre set of uh, experiments on ants. And uh, he noticed that it took several days for ants to recognize that one of their nestmates had died. And so a dead ant would stay right there in the nest and nobody would, you know, even notice it. And then uh, after a few days, they would finally recognize it and, um, and get rid of the ant. And, and what he concluded is that it was... It was um, not something that they saw visually, it was something that they smelled. And as the, this dead ant's body began to decompose, it would put off a certain odor that the ants would then recognize and they would all gather around this dead ant and, and pick it up and carry it out into the ant cemetery. And so after a series of experiments that I can't imagine how he figured this out, he discovered that it was the, the aroma of, and I might be pronouncing this wrongly, oleic acid. O-L-E-I-C, oleic acid that they smelled. And so what he would do to confirm his findings is that he took uh, some small bits of paper and he dabbed them with some oleic acid and put them in the nest. And sure enough, the ants picked up the pieces of paper and transported the pieces of paper out to the ant cemetery. And then in kind of a strange, rather, <laughs> rather perverted twist of things, Dr. Wilson decided, decided that he would take oleic acid and place some of it on some live ants. <laughs> and sure enough, the community of ants, having smelled that, would pick up the live ant with his little antenna and feet wriggling the whole way in protest and transport him out to the ant cemetery. And this indignant, um, living dead ant 
would wash himself off before he could ever get back to the, to the uh, nest. And if by some strange chance he had not gotten all of the oleic, ans- uh, oleic acid off of him, they would pick him up again and take him back to the ant cemetery. That's a pretty strange story, but <laughs> the point I'm simply making is, what do you think? What do you think people smell when they enter our midst? Now, don't be silly. I'm not talking about cigarette smoke or... I'm talking, what do they sense? What do they see in our faces? What's this... What kind of aroma do they get when they come among us? Ladies and gentlemen, by the way, that's that climate of evangelism that I've been talking about. What do they sense when they get in our midst? Gosh. What is the guy with the blue mohawk? What's he going to conclude when he sits among us and, and worships with us? Well, guys, I've got to hurry. Uh, because we, we want to spend some time with the Lord at, at, in the sacrament. But let me close by outlining what I think they've got to see and they've got to smell. And it is, ladies and gentlemen, in our text. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. Here it is. Full of grace and truth. Now, I I, want to concentrate on just one of those, but I don't want to neglect the other because both of those are essential. But truth, and I'm by no means suggesting that Gracie Van has some corner on the truth. No, no, I don't hear me say that. But what I can suggest, and I can say emphatically, is that truth is much loved here. It is much sought after, much valued. One of the things that we desire most is that when people walk through those doors, those people who come out of a culture in which they've been lied to and and conned and manipulated can walk into a place where they can find and hear this rare commodity needed by all of us, that being truth. Truth heard, truth loved, truth applied. Our, Our lost friends long for truth just like we do. But so many of them, I think, have almost given up hope that it even exists. But one of the things that they must discern is that we're, we're stalwarts of the truth. Okay. It's that other part that I want you to fix on. This other part of Jesus' countenance. Jesus' glory. That must become commonplace among us. Grace. Uh, Oh, we've got it. That is, if we're Christians, we've got grace. We just don't distribute it very often. You, uh, You and I, as believers, we've received grace. No, yes, indeed. It's just that we don't spread it around very much. We've, we found it, but we rarely express it. God's grace has certainly changed us. But it hadn't quite gotten to our faces yet. Grace is that long-awaited revolution of the heart 
that sets captives free. And yet somehow, bondage to rules and performance is still the order of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, we wouldn't dream of pointing to the law when it comes to our justification before God, would we? But we would dream of talking and focusing on law and law works when it comes to the living out of our Christian life. And it's that. I have a, I have a notion that the prostitute was alluding to. Church? Why would I go there? I already feel bad enough. And they'll just make me feel worse. Gang, um, grace has set you and me free from all of our sin. But somehow it's not set us free enough that we aren't quick to condemn them for their sin. Grace has clothed us with forgiveness. Yes, indeed. But our new clothes are so beautiful to us. We're not willing to share them with people who are still naked. Gang, there are grace killers all around the Christian community. They, they, they kill with words and with looks and with attitudes and with tongues with hypercritical spirits, with intolerance. And I'm here to tell you, that young man with the blue mohawk, he'll spot it every time. And I'm saying that we've got to replace that with a yes face. A face that kind of beams with grace. An attitude that says we don't care what you've done because we probably did it too. We don't care what you've done or perhaps are doing. Jesus will forgive you just like He did us. And we'll forgive you too. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm pleading for an attitude as our first component part of an irresistible testimony. An attitude of grace. A mindset that knows that the only thing, the only thing, ladies and gentlemen, that separates us from a gay pride parade is grace. You, gang, you see, gang, I'm afraid that it's become us versus them. And when it becomes us versus them, grace dies. And when grace dies, it shows up in our faces. And the little girl with a tongue ring, she gets it. And she wouldn't dare come in here. You know, guys, Jesus loved to tell stories. He loved to tell parables. And so many of His parables are nothing more than parables about grace. The prodigal son, classic illustration. But the story about the lady who was caught in adultery in John 8. And there will always be some in the crowd who want to glare at the woman who's caught in adultery. There will always be some who will want to urge us to be stern and rigid and cold. 
There will always be some who will prefer stoning to forgiving. There will always be some who will vote for judgment rather than tolerance. What I'm pleading for is a congregation that is full of grace and truth. You know, when you stop to think about it, ladies and gentlemen, you do know what it was that um, caused Christ to uh, come visit us, don't you? He understood the enormity of the need and knew what it was going to cost him. But he chose to dwell among us, says the text, because he knew the size of our need. And so he chose grace. And I'm suggesting that you and I must choose likewise. One final story. Maybe you know the name of of the German psychiatrist Viktor Frankl. He's a Holocaust survivor, was in a German concentration camp during World War II. He was interrogated by uh, the Nazi secret police. He was stripped of all his possessions, his clothes, his jewelry, his wedding band. He was imprisoned for days without knowing whether his family was alive or dead. His head was shaved. He was repeatedly taken from prison and forced to stand naked under bright lights through grueling periods of questioning. He underwent numerous savage, senseless tortures at the hands of the Germans. And after he was liberated, he he began to study those who had survived. And uh, he came to this conclusion, and I'm quoting. I realized I still had the power to choose my own attitude. No matter what happened now, the attitude choice was mine to make. Bitterness or forgiveness, to give up or to go on. Hatred or hope, the attitude was still mine. And no one in the Gestapo could take away my attitude. And so, my dear brother and sister in Christ, no one, no one is in charge of your attitude except you. And I'm asking for you to choose an attitude of grace as we attempt to build an irresistible testimony. May we pray. Our Father, grace, grace, more grace is what we ask for and what we've gotten. It is grace that has set us free from all our sin. It is grace that sustains us. It is grace that encourages us. It is grace that is our hope and our stay. It is your grace that heals our wounds. It is your grace that gives us stamina to go on. Why? Why would we ever dream? of refusing to distribute grace to people whose hair is a color we don't like. Oh God, might this place drip 
with grace. And when the lost world finds its way to us, might she be able to smell it? Might she be able to see it? Might she sense it and know that she has found something heavenly, something divine, because she has found grace and truth in a people who are sold out to the very author of grace and truth. And it is His death that we remember today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.